It's been great uh, meeting some of you and meeting a lot of you. Thanks for uh, reminding me of your name or the grace that you extend to me when I forget and maybe even call you by a completely uh, different name. But uh, maybe you're here for the first time or you've just been here a couple times like me, and we hope that you feel welcome here and, and just feel part of this family. We would love for you to be a part of the Genesis family. Uh, we believe that God's doing a great work here, has been doing a great work in this church for some time now, and we're excited about the things that are going to happen around here. So uh, thanks for being here with us uh, today. We have lots of football fans, I know. I know we've got a lot of NFL fans, a lot of good college football on yesterday. Do we have any Wisconsin Badgers fans here? Is are the Elzingas Badgers fans? I don't know. I think they're working in, in children's area today. Well, Nate and his Buckeyes, you know, big win last night. Kept me up late watching that game. Any Wolverines fans? There's got to be a few Michigan fans around here. You did obviously see the game yesterday. <laughs> I'm an Illini fan. We don't have much to cheer about, but we did get a big victory yesterday. So, uh, But anyway, all that good stuff. William Joseph Buckner uh, was born in California. He graduated from Napa High School and went on to become the second player chosen by the Los Angeles Dodgers in the 1968 Major League Baseball draft. Buckner played his first Major League game in 1969 with the L.A. Dodgers at the age of 19 and played professional baseball for 21 years. He won the National League batting title in 1980 with the Chicago Cubs. He was named an All-Star in 1981. Buckner was known as one of the more consistent hitters in the major leagues during his 21 years of play. In 2,517 games, he accumulated 2,715 hits with only 453 strikeouts. Buckner was a speedy runner who twice finished in the top 10 in stolen bases. He twice led the league in doubles, and he later joined the Boston, 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 I sound like I'm from Boston, Boston Red Sox. It'd be easy to say that Bill Buckner is known for many great things. If you're a fan of baseball, you know that that's not the case. You know very well that he is only known for one thing, and it was game six of the 1986 World Series. The game was tied. Mookie Wilson of the Mets was up to bat with a runner on second in the bottom of the ninth inning, and Bill Buckner was playing first. Watch this clip. isn't it? I had a similar experience myself. My last softball game ever in Louisville before moving here, I was involved in an error that ended our season, but not quite as traumatic as Bill Buckner's error. But his error, this famous error in 1986, the World Series Game 6 that allowed the winning run to come around second base, 
and finally to home plate, uh, was a deciding factor for the Boston Red Sox. It tied the series 3-3 to the very next night. The New York Mets won Game 7 and ultimately the World Series. But Bill Buckner has been unfairly misrepresented as a person and as a baseball player because of that one play. And what many people forget is that it was a horrible ninth inning with, with bad pitching and errors and, and base hits. And so he wasn't ultimately responsible, but he's the one that we always remember. And he's rep- misrepresented because of this. We, we know him as this guy who, who committed an error. People say that Bill Buckner, for many years since then, uh, suffered from a great time of depression and almost went into hiding. It was just about a year, I believe it was two years ago, that he threw out opening pitch uh, at Fenway Park and was greeted to this monstrous crowd welcoming him with tears just pouring down his face. It was almost as some sort of chapter uh, was being put behind him. But, but I think he was unfairly represented. And we've been talking about Gideon over the last few weeks here at, at Genesis. And I think Gideon's a victim of this same sort of misrepresentation. But it's different. It's different than Buckner's. It might surprise you. You know, I was always quick to regard Gideon as this great hero of the faith, that he deserved heroic status. If they're mentioning, mentioning him in the Bible, in this great war that, that he helped the, the Israelites to overcome the Midianites, we deserve to, to call him a hero. But the truth is... Gideon gets a lot more credit than he deserves. We've misrepresented him. Gideon struggled with his faith. He struggled mightily with his faith. And when he faced the Midianites, he was able to embrace his faith and to follow God to victory. But when the battle was over, his life proved that he had little to no need for God whatsoever. When there was no more battle to fight, when there was no more war standing before him, Gideon proved with his life and the way that he lived that he had no need for God. And he failed miserably. And we've been walking through this series that we've called Mind Games. It's simply, it's a series about faith. We're talking about faith and and what it means to put our trust in something that we cannot see, but we believe that it's there. What kind of faith do we need when we feel lost? What kind of faith do we need when we feel abandoned or when we're facing a great challenge? And we play mind games when our faith is overcome by unbelief. Because when our faith is overcome by unbelief, then we start thinking things that aren't necessarily true, like I've been abandoned by God, or there's no way that I can get through, or I don't need God. I don't need Him with my life. I I can get through this on my own. But we must have faith, and that's what we find in Gideon. Gideon needed faith. In Judges chapter 6, we found Gideon hiding in a wine press in the mountains of Israel. The Midianites had invaded Israel and it caused a national crisis. The people of Israel were bordering complete elimination and destruction at the hands of the Midianites. They not only were coming in and taking over the land, they were stealing from the homes, they were killing the people, they were destroying the crops. They had every, uh, every intention of completely obliterating Israel. And the reality of it was not far off. And Gideon felt abandoned by God. He said those very words in Judges chapter 6. And we feel abandoned by God at times, don't we? When things stink, when when life isn't going our way, or when we keep crying out to God, or we keep looking to God for answers and they just don't seem to be there. It's as if God is silent. Well, Gideon was reminded of God's continual presence. And as we found in Judges chapter 7, it was a great motivation. Last week we read about the great battle. Gideon was called by God to lead the Israelite army against Midian. But his, his army went through what we might call a little bit of mandatory downsizing because this, this army 
that was as large as 32,000 men was quickly whittled by God down to 10,000 and to finally 300 people. 300 Israelites versus 135,000 Midianites. You don't win that battle. There's no chance of winning that war. And sometimes the circumstances that we face are well beyond our control. And when we look at the odds, they don't add up. They're not good odds. But as God proved to Gideon, nothing is too great for God. Well, Israel, was defe- or Israel ultimately defeated Midian, thanks to God and His power, and Israel had their land back. So Judges chapter 8 is all about post-war Israel. I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to Judges chapter 8. Go to the Old Testament. Judges chapter 8, we're going to begin here in verse 22. Judges chapter 8 is all about post-war recovery. The battle's over. The Midianites were defeated, and the people of Israel went back to their homes. There was no reason to hide anymore. They had hope once again that things could get back to the way that they used to be. And so there was peace in Israel. Gideon was now the national hero, and he returned to his hometown for a celebration and probably a fish fry too. Uh, Judges chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, would you follow along with me? It says, The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And so Gideon's approval rating was soaring after this battle against the Midianites, and the people were ready to crown him as their king over the nation of Israel. But God never asked him to be king. God asked Gideon to be a judge, and not as a judge as we know judges today, but judges at this time were chosen for specific purposes, often military purposes. There there was a situation that needed to be resolved, and Gideon was chosen as that specific person to lead Israel through this problem to ultimately another place. God never asked Gideon to be judge or to Gideon to be to be king. And up until this point, Israel had not yet had a king, and Gideon wasn't going to be the first. Well, fortunately, Gideon denied their request, and he reminded them with specific words, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. God is your king. I'm not. God is your king. Verse 24, and he said, I do have one request, and here's his problem. If he would have just stopped with the words that he had just shared with the Israelites, he might have worked out all right. But he said, you know, wait a second. Now that you mention it, maybe I do have one request. That each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. Verse 25. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. And so these people were so rich that even the camels were wearing jewelry. And Gideon says, you know, I do have one request. You know what? You do owe me. You owe me something for what I've gone through. And here's what I see with Gideon. I I think we're beginning to see the onset of a pride problem in his life. I mean, the people were eager to thank Gideon, Gideon and the Midianites. They were wealthy people, and they wore these gold crescent earrings and these nose rings, and they carried other pieces of gold with them. And on this day, 
after the request and the people giving in, it's, the Bible says that Gideon ended up with 1,700 shekels of gold or about 40 pounds of gold. Skip over, if you would, a couple of verses to verse 29. It says, Jerubbaal, which is another name for Gideon here, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Now, what does this sound like? Well, to me, it sounds like the life of a king. You know, here's a guy that refused their appointment or their suggestion to become king of Israel, but now he is living as a king. Uh, Gideon was now stinking rich. He had a bunch of wives and at least one shack of honey. Uh, the Bible says that his wives, the Bible says that his wives b- bore him 70 sons. Now notice that it just records sons. That doesn't include the number of daughters that he had. Now you think John and Kate plus eight is a great reality television show? This is a great reality television show in the making right here, okay? But here's what's most interesting. And it's almost as if the writer of this book, the book of Judges, had to make certain that we picked up on one important detail, and that was the name of one of Gideon's sons. What was that name? Abimelech. Now, names in the Bible, names during this time carried great significance. Now, we name our children today for specific reasons or after a loved one. Uh, In the Bible, they did the same, but they often named their children uh, for a statement that they wanted to make as a family, like, this is what we are about. Do you know what the name Abimelech means? My father is king. Gideon named his own son Abimelech so that the statement would be screamed out loud that my father is king. Yeah, the same guy who turned down the appointment, who received all of the riches and all the glory and all the plunder of a king, now has even named his own son to make that same statement. He knew what he was doing when he chose his son's name, but what do we learn from this? I I think we learned that Gideon had a pride issue. I, I wonder if it was his issue in the very beginning when he even felt abandoned by God. He was quick to put himself first before anyone else. He was always looking out for number one. And I think the pride issue might be one of our greatest issues too. I know it is for me at times. And sure, pride does mean arrogance, but it doesn't always have to mean arrogance. I mean, you might be sitting back saying, I'm not an arrogant person. I've never had anybody tell me that I'm arrogant. But is pride an issue? I mean, pride is all about putting ourselves before God, that our needs and our agenda must come first. And Gideon finished out his life with, with one statement, loud and clear, coming from him and everything that he did. And it was just basically a statement that just says, I don't need God. I don't need God. You know, sure, maybe there was a time that I needed God, and yes, I would probably never say it from my mouth that I don't need God. No way. But in my actions and in the way that I live, I don't need God. And I think when we live with pride and when we continually put our agenda and our desires and our will before God's, we make the same statement. And we would never say it directly. But selfishly, we say, I don't need God. And we can be people, I believe that we can be people 
that can live for so much more. I can do it, and I know that you can too. Verse 27, if you would just back up a couple of verses. It says, Gideon made the gold that he had received, some of the gold, into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So here's a man with so much influence, so much opportunity, that people were ready to follow him. They were ready to follow his example. I mean, they were ready to appoint him as their king, as their leader to live by. And as a man that knew God, he had the chance to lead them down to this great road of spiritual revival and repentance to make sure that they never fell into the same trap again. But instead of honoring God, he used this victory and this occasion as his own personal, for his own personal glory. And so he gave the people an idol. I mean, the very sin that we find them falling to in Judges chapter 6, he returns to the land once again. He gives them this ephod, and they fell back into this pattern of sin and this lack of trust for God. And with Gideon, it's almost like it's this cycle that takes place in his life. You know, this time of feeling abandoned by God and and wondering if he's really out there, to realizing that he is, that he is always with us, that then he goes through this time where he needs great trust to to get over this great hurdle, this great challenge in his life, and God is faithful, and he, he works through Gideon in this situation, and he helps him to overcome these great odds. But when the battle's over, when, when the temperature has been lowered, when there's no war worth fighting anymore, Gideon loses focus. He takes his eyes off what is truly important in life. He he gets surrounded and concerned about all the things that are happening around him. And with his life, he basically says, "I I don't need God. I'm completely capable of doing this myself. Complacency set in, and his faith didn't matter. And it was like he really didn't need God. And I think this happens to us, if we're really honest, I think this happens to us as Christians often. You know, I I know I'm guilty of this. It's easy for me to need God when I need God. You know, when I have a checklist that I need to be fulfilled, it's easy for me to turn to God when I've got a tough task at the office, or it's easier for me to turn to God when there's a tough conversation that I need to have with someone that I know that I need some strength or some wisdom. I more quickly turn to God when things seem to be getting out of control, when there are things happening around me that I know I don't have power over. It's easy to turn to God and to have faith during those times. It doesn't make it simple. It doesn't mean that things are going to be easy, but at least I recognize my need for God. But sometimes, for me, it's hard to have faith or to be growing in my faith or growing in my trust when in reality, I don't really need faith. You know, things are going good. You know, the, everyone is healthy. Uh, the, the cars are running okay. There's no major crisis in my life. Is your life like that at all? You know, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about faith during crisis, faith when we feel abandoned and there's no one out there to turn to, or faith when we, we do have this great challenge standing before us. And, and maybe for some of you, you know, you've been here and you've appreciated that strength and that encouragement, but you've just been kind of saying, you know, I've got a lot to be thankful for right now. Well, today what I want to do in, in just these few minutes of uh, this remaining time that we have is, is just to kind of place um, some final statements before us as people in looking at Gideon's life and looking at all these experiences and thinking about faith, what, what are some things that we can do maybe when everything's good to make sure that we are ready and prepared 
to make sure that we are trusting God or learning to trust Him more and more with our life or surrendering more and more of ourselves to Him to make sure that we're not being people who say, I don't really need God. I can do this on my own. And so I just tried to just pull a couple of statements from Scripture, and I just want to give these to you real quickly, and you can write them down and, and spend some time thinking through them and how they may apply to your life. They're, they're pretty simple. The first one is this. Read your Bible. That as followers of Jesus Christ, or even if you're standing outside looking in right now wondering what this is all about, I think one of the greatest things that you can do for your faith and for your life is to make it a practice, to make it a discipline, to read your Bible. And I want you to know, I, I've been a part of the church my entire life. I, I grew up in church. My parents were great and, and kept my family involved with church. I took my Bible for granted for so many years. You know, it was easy for me to think, well, I go to church on Sunday mornings, and I went again on Sunday nights. I even went to a private school for a little while, and so I took my Bible for granted, and I hardly read it. And even now, as I read regularly, I know there is still more that I can do, and I'm continually amazed as I read this book at, this, at the strength and the insight I receive from my own life. It, it's, it's just like, you know, it, just this, this personal strength that I get from reading the words of the Bible and the encouragement that I received. And I just can't help but ask, well, should I be surprised because of that? I mean, that is what God has promised that He'll do for us if we're willing to commit our lives to this practice of reading the Bible because these are the words of God. And, and the more I read it, the more I understand it. And the more that I read it and think about it, the more that, that God speaks to me. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is without error. These are the very words of God, and they are useful to us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I love that first sentence there. For the Word of God is living and active, it teaches us how to live it. It points to the truth. And I believe that Gideon showed signs of this in his life. Even when Israel stood before him and, and wanted to force him to become king, it was almost as if he was pointing to the truth in that I was never designed to be your king. Only the Lord can rule over you. He showed these glimpses of truth. Are you showing those same signs of truth in your life and in the way that you live? as you read the words of God and as they change you and as they transform you, are you giving this impression to others that something is happening in your life that you, aren't, you are different, you're not the same? And I believe that if we want to grow in our faith, we, we've got to study and learn our Bibles together. You know, these words of God teach us about our salvation and help us to understand uh, the power of the message. These words of God teach us about assurance and, and give us this assurance to, to keep on living and to know that our salvation comes from Jesus Christ, that our growth as followers of Jesus depends on living by the principles that have been set forth in this book, that our ability to share our faith with others hinges on the confidence that we get as we study this book and know it. And, and I look at it at times and I am overwhelmed, you know, I am overwhelmed by how much there is in the Bible but I'm thankful for a God who just keeps speaking as I read it. And I believe that knowing and learning God's Word can help you sort through your past. It can make sense of your present, and it can prepare you for the future. Jesus tells a story in the Bible. He tells a parable 
this parable that we know as the wise man and the foolish man. You know the story. The wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. It's a pretty simple story. There were two men. They both were building a house. One man built his house on the rock. He he dug deep down into the foundation so the home would be sturdy. The other man, the foolish man, he built his house in the sand. It was easy to build in the sand. A lot more simpler, probably even cheaper to do. But the storms would come, as the parable was clear. The storms will come. And which man's house survived the storm? The wise man, the one who built his house on the rock. And for you and me, I think what that parable communicates is that these very words of God, this knowing and understanding, this studying and reading, this personal investment that we make, when we do this, we are like wise men and wise women who are digging down deep into the rock, the bedrock of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're preparing ourselves for the storms which Jesus said will come. We're getting ourselves ready. We're putting our trust in the right place. Let's be people that read our Bibles. Uh, I I think great things, you know, will continue coming as, you know, you, you get a Bible. And we've got Bibles available back at the Info Hub. If you don't have one, we'd love to get one for you. Uh, You can go to, you know, a Christian bookstore and find some great Bible reading plans. I'd be happy to share some ideas with you. And I'm really excited about where we're going as a church as we, you know, create opportunities uh, for people to study the Word of God with one another so that we can grow together. The second thing is this, and I had a hard time with this statement. In fact, I was trying to find a way of just kind of saying it cute almost or how could I write it cleverly to, to maybe lessen the blow, but I couldn't get there, and so here's how I wrote it. Confess your sin. That we need to confess our sins. And we don't like to acknowledge sin. And I think in our postmodern culture today, there's such a denial of sin and what it is or what we believe the Bible communicates as sin that we sometimes just even ignore it altogether. We don't like to make statements like this, but there's no way to make it sound pretty. We've got to take care of the sin in our life to get ourselves ready, to grow our faith, to increase our faith and our trust in God. Judges chapter 6, verse 1, at the very beginning, back to week 1, the verse says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. What was the precursor to God giving them over to the hands of the Midianites? It was sin. It's almost as if God was saying, you know what? I will let you do what you want to do. I am a God who is willing to stum- sometimes stand out of the way and let you give you over to the desires of your own heart. So he gave them what they wanted. And in their pride, they could think of nothing other than themselves. And it was a problem. It became a problem in Judges chapter 6, and it once again became a problem for Gideon in Israel when the war was over. Sin is anything that falls short of the standard that God has set for us. And as followers of Jesus Christ, I believe that God wants more for me. He wants more for you. He wants us to live holy lives. And the great news is, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, then your sins have been forgiven. The Bible teaches that because of God's grace and God's mercy, that our sins have been separated from us as far as the east is from the west. It is no longer a problem as far as eternity is concerned. We are forgiveness, and that forgiveness will never change. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That we are new. That we are no longer slaves to this world. Sin does not own us any longer. And we can find victory in Christ. And we can find the faith to resist sexual sin in our life. 
that we can find the faith to resist pornography. And it's so difficult for so many because it's private and it can ruin your relationships. And we can find the faith to, to avoid gossip and to move away from gossip as followers of Jesus. And we can find the faith as we confess our sin, as we confess before God our failings, we can find the faith to overcome pride. And like pride, like Gideon, it's when everything becomes all about you. And pride's a sin. And we don't have to give in to it. We are a new creation, as the Bible says. We have been called to a higher standard of living. And I am a firm believer that when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, that, we have been, that there, there's freedom that comes with that. That living for Christ is all about freedom. And I believe that we do our lives a great disservice when we focus, or our only focus is on the elimination of sin in our lives. I believe this can lead to legalism. I believe that it can cause us to lose sight of the freedom that God wants us to enjoy, that God wants us to live in. Focusing on sin alone is dangerous. But choosing to not focus on it at all is just as dangerous, if not more. And I believe it became a problem for Gideon and I think overlooking sin in our life can be dangerous too. What can we do? I believe we can confess our sins before God. I believe we can go to Him. I believe we can lay it out before Him and trust that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and save us from a lot of junk that sometimes we have to walk through. That we can confess our sins to a faithful brother and sister in Christ who can hold us accountable. A couple of verses, 1 John 3, 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. John chapter 8, verses 34 and 36. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And the greatest message of that verse is, that we have been set free by Jesus Christ. And when we put our trust in Him, when we put our faith in Him, when we turn to Him as the leader of our life and seek His forgiveness, we are freed. That we can find the strength to live, that we can find the strength to grow in our faith, that God can help us overcome anything. And the last thing, in wondering how we can stay strong in our faith, how we can live lives that don't proclaim this lack of need for God, but a greater need for God is this. And that is to live for something greater than yourself. That that needs to be a conviction in our life, a constant reminder. You know, if we were a football team with a locker room, how they hang those signs, you know, above the doorways as the team leaves to go to the field, these reminders that we need a sign in our life, a permanent sign that continually reminds us that we are called to live for something greater than ourselves. Gideon had the chance to seize a great opportunity. He had the influence. He had the attention of others. And God was using him as this great instrument for this particular time in Israel. He had every chance to lead the people back to God. But his personal ambitions, his own self-pride stood in the way. He had a pride problem. Are you living for something greater than yourself? Is that the declaration of your life? 
that I am living for something so much more than just me. That it's about God and it's about the message that comes with knowing God and His Son, Jesus. Because as Gideon had the chance to influence lives, we have that same opportunity too. Listen to Revelation chapter 21, beginning of verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. John is looking into the future and and seeing this picture of Christ returning, and everything that that's going to mean is He wipes away every tear from every eye. Verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are are trustworthy and true. I am making everything new. Friends, here's the greatest thing about that message. It's not a message that is just going to be initiated in the future. It was a message that was proclaimed when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead, that that process of making everything new in this world has already begun. And you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have been invited to participate in this restoration project that is currently taking place in this world today and even in Noblesville today to make everything new. That the way things are, where there's brokenness, can can be healed, that there can be healing, that there can be this, this time of restoration. That God is making all things new. That His Son, Jesus Christ, came into this world to free people like you and me. And He has not set us free so that we can live carelessly and proclaim with our lives that we don't need God. He has set us free so that we can participate with Him in the world that He is, work He is doing to make things right in this world again. Gideon got lazy. He lost focus. Pride took over in his life and he had no battle to fight or purpose to live for. And the worst thing that we can do as followers of Jesus is to lose focus. And the greatest thing that we can do is to daily be reminded that we have been invited by God to join Him in the work that He is doing in this world to make things right again. What does that mean? When you overcome temptation, when you confess your sin, when you fight for your marriage, when you make up your mind as a parent to fight for your child's heart, when you give sacrificially with your money to the work that God is doing in this church, when you use your gifts to serve in a place like Gen Kids, or when you reach out to the next door neighbor, when you give an extra car away to a single mom who needs one, you pronounce that you are living for something greater than yourself in this world. And when this happens, your faith increases, your heart grows, and you declare that you are joining the game that you are an active participant in everything that God is doing to make things new. And my prayer as we wrap up this series today is that this would be your commitment. Can we be these kind of people? Can we be this kind of person? I hope we'll make it our prayer. At age 36, Francis Havergal had served Jesus for many years. Something was missing in her life. She felt like she was always searching for more, that life could be more fulfilling, that her faith could be greater. 
or at least she wondered. And one Sunday in 1873, she discovered that her faith could be even greater. And God put one thought in her mind. It was this phrase, all-out surrender. That the key to a greater life, that the key to living to some, for something greater than yourself, the key to a growing faith when times are good or when times are bad is this, all-out surrender. And soon thereafter, she wrote this famous song. The song says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of my love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Her cry became this, take my life, all out surrender, living for something greater than myself. Let's let that be our prayer this morning.